G'day everybody and welcome to another bloody movie podcast. Mm. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is another bloody movie podcast. It is. E- Eric approved, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I'm Sean Coates and this is Eric Tisher and we're back. We're back and this isn't uh, a prank or anything. <laughs> no. Even though we probably haven't recorded for quite a while. It has been, I think, since our Suspiria episode was the last one that we've done, Eric. Yeah, and, and I, I can remember like watching that quite a while that ago. That seems like an eternity ago, doesn't mm. it? But you know what? We're back now, and in a new year. It's now 2019. Yeah. And this episode, we're just going to look back on the year that was, 2018. Yep. Year in review. Year in review. We're going to talk about, uh, instead of like instead of doing a best of and worst of, like counting down, all that kind of stuff, we're going to yeah. do something a little bit different this year. Don't want to restrict numbers or yeah, anything. And we just want to talk about, just have a nice little casual conversation of what we thought, how, how 2018 was in the year of film, like what we thought was great, what we thought wasn't so great, what a lot of people, what people needed to see more of, what people really thought too much of in our eyes and just a little general chat and just not having to grade things because we will be doing and we might as well announce this here the another bloody movie podcast awards will Mm. be released a couple of days before the oscars because you know what uh award season has been uh pretty bland this year i think yeah, a lot of people went to impress with the uh, Golden Globes. I don't really pay much attention to Golden Globes. No, who does? I mean, the, <laughs> the Hollywood... Oh, well, people that complain about it seem to. Yeah, uh, I mean, the the AB, the, AM, the AB Mappers, mm. as they're going to be called, the Another Bloody Movie Podcast Awards, the AB Mappers. <laughs> they, it's the only awards show that matters, guys. This is it's We're <laughs> going to have a much higher quality uh, nominations here and mm. uh, winners. Speaking of which, um, as we record, the Oscar nominations come out at around midnight tonight, Australia time. But um, the uh, nominations for the Razzies were actually just announced not too long ago. Oh, were they? Yeah, Gotti swept the nominations. <laughs> no surprises there. I think Holmes and Watson no. got quite a few too. Like, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, if we could be as prestigious as the Razzies, like, you know what? Oh, I mean, the Razzies, they're doing quite well for themselves. <laughs> I mean... I I would pr- pay more attention to the Razzies than any other prestigious awards ceremony. Mm. Well, we are going to get to talking about some of the lesser films of 2018, but we'll start out by just asking Eric, and Eric can ask me as well, or I can just answer my own question. <laughs> you can tell we haven't recorded in a while because we are not prepared at all for this. Well, I mean, as you said, it's going to be like a discussion. Exactly. So you usually don't really... Uh, plan a a casual discussion or conversation as much continuing um our goal here on another bloody movie podcast to have absolutely no consistency whatsoever (laughs) so eric how have you found the year of 2018 in film has it been a good one has it been an underwhelming one what have you thought well it's it's interesting because this is the year where i got to watch a lot of films in cinemas Mm. um so i didn't actually have to wait for these films to come out later and, mm. and watch them so i got to watch a lot of these films as they came around so i sort of there's a bit of a bias towards me being able to watch a lot of them this year although i don't know uh, if this year's been stronger than last year or other years in the past but it seems i think it's been a good year so far there's been a lot of good films a lot of films i'm pretty happy with and not a lot of disappointing films, I find. I'm kind of with you there as well, and I think a big factor to that is moving from a small country town into um, the second largest city in the country <laughs> as well, where yeah. all of these films are more readily available and more accessible to you. 
due to, you know, art house cinemas and film festivals yeah. and film festivals especially. Like I attended MIF in twenty seventeen. I only saw ten films there, but this year I really made more of an effort to see a lot more films. Like I made much more of an effort to, you know, expand my cinema going horizons this year and yeah. see a lot more like I guess more foreign foreign language films mm. and uh, in my top ten this year, which I'm I might announce later on the show, but uh, only eight of my top ten are non-English language films. So I've really gotten more into foreign language cinema this mm. year. And foreign language cinema and world cinema have been by far and away more superior than American cinema this year. Yeah, they they, they usually are, I, I find at least, because um, a, a lot of the American films sort of seem a bit restrictive in trying to make still make a film marketable as well as... Uh, it being artistic, a lot of the foreign films probably still get commissions to make whatever they want to make, or at least those filmmakers come from more disciplined art schools, art film schools and such. But then there's also a lot of uh, interesting sort of protest films that have been made across uh, the world, like uh, you mentioned Rafiki uh, earlier this year, which is a... Uh, which is a bit un- un- unfortunate for uh, that film because it was banned in their home country, but you're seeing a lot of really um, sort of bold films being made that are just, uh, you know, really um, just riding a fine line uh, across this all sorts of audiences. You mentioned films getting banned, and Rafiki, for people who didn't know, because I like, don't think I actually talked about it on the show, Rafiki is a Kenyan film about it's an lgbt love story about Mm. these two women that you know fall in love with each other in their very very uh what would you say um uh conservative uh like religious community within uh nairobi and uh, that film is is it's really good like it's a bit clunky like dialogue wise but i think it's just it's got a lot of heart to it and Mm. the fact that it got banned because it apparently promotes homosexuality and it's it's a real shame that that happened because it's a, it's a really good film and the people that would benefit most from seeing that film aren't even allowed to see it. Yeah, which is a, it's a, which is a real tragedy. But this will lead in very well to what I was going to say, some of our favourites of this year. And Eric recently just saw this too because he mentioned, uh, you know, people being restricted and like heavily like censored, I guess, films. And someone that the film festival and this film, Three Faces, introduced me to was the legend Jafar oh, Panahi. Jafar Panahi. Mm. And yeah, his latest from film, Three Faces, I saw at Sydney Film, um, not Sydney Film Festival, Melbourne Film Festival this year, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I've gone back and rewatched a few of his other films, like mm. Tehran Taxi, Offside, and This Is Not a Film. And I think Three Faces is probably my least favorite of those four, but this is still a fantastic film. I mean, it goes to show. Um how how strong the filmmaker is even even though you find this particular film to be weaker compared to his other films you still think it's a very strong film and a very strong film for this year even uh i think uh, you also mentioned that uh, you like the favorite a lot but you don't think it's a uh, um it's lanthimos's strongest film mm. Yeah, well, I haven't talked about The Favourite yet on this podcast either, mm. but yeah, I absolutely love The Favourite, and yeah, Killing of the Sacred Deer was my favourite film yeah. of last year. I absolutely love Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, I've, I've, I have not yet seen Alps or Canetta, but I really want to go back and see them, but The th- the Favourite is, I think, better than The Lobster, about on par with Dogtooth, actually. Oh. Maybe Dogtooth is slightly better, but I think The Killing of the Sacred Deer is still his best film, though. And what? The Favourite is just... It's so good. I mean, you can tell that he didn't write it like straight off the bat, yeah. but I think it's probably one of the best screenplays his films has had, and it actually might be the favourite, funnily enough, to win uh, Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars this year. Yeah, I, I hear it's been getting a lot of buzz for um, Oscars. 
Yeah, but the, well, one thing that I see from the favorite is that it, it looks very impressive visually. It looks great there, but then there's also like weird use of like, I mean, this movie has more fisheye lenses than a Buster Rhymes video. Yeah, it's, I heard it's, there's it's, a few it's, of those. It, it was interesting. Like, do you think they were I think well it used? Did, I think it. I think it kind of worked. Yeah. Mm. I heard that the 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 soundtrack to the film was also quite interesting. That the there's, there's quite a variety of music from like strings to like eerie ambient stuff. Eric, as just like me, got to see a lot of films at film festivals this year. Oh yeah. And I'm guessing a lot. Some of your highlights of 2018 came from these festivals, just like my, myself. Would that be correct? Oh, definitely. Right. What have been some of your favorites? Some of my favorite films. Oh, I, I mean, I haven't been thinking too hard on it. I've been a bit busy of late. Although some films that I've uh, been thinking about a bit would probably be films like The Wild Pear Tree or You're Gonna Hate This for The House That Jack Built. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it, I, I won't say too much on the program, but uh, Eric and I have had lengthy discussions about <laughs> this. I have a review on Movie Babble that you can check out. Um, you know, go to moviebabblereviews.com to read that. And someone on one of the writers on the Movie Babble staff, uh, Chris Van Dyke, actually. Apologies if I've mispronounced your name, but he actually wrote kind of a rebuttal to my piece by saying it's actually kind of good. So check that mm. out on Movie Babble as well if you want to see two different comp- opinions. But yeah, apart from Matt Dillon's performance and some some decent moments of uh, black comedy, I absolutely despise the house that Jack built. Yeah, I kind of I kind of love the house that Jack built. It's it's one of the rare films that came out last year that I actually rewatched, and I seem to enjoy it just as much. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can so never really watch I, I it think, again. I think it holds up. But I think it's got a it's got a good level of self awareness. Uh, that's something that we that we kind of disagree on. Yeah. Um, I think other than that, I think it's a very interesting film to watch, regardless of it, whether it worked or not. So, I mean, e- even if you you're probably not going to enjoy it. You probably would admit that it's it's interesting, at least. Well, my, my problem with The House That Jack Built is because the movie has zero respect for its audience. It, it absolutely doesn't. It doesn't, doesn't really. It, it kind <laughs> because of every single idea or theme or, like, you know, ideology that this film is trying to, like, express is expressed so much, it's so overstated and so just in your face that it just becomes like unbearable. And it's just, it feels like Lars von Trier thinks the, you're a moron. No, it's sort of where... That's that's what a lot of people think, but it, it's sort of... Lars von Trier is sort of making a weird parody of himself, in a sense. It's very strange. I, I, I'm, ver- I'm very sure that a lot that's just being said is, is not to be taken too seriously. I don't think that the, the, the Jack... A lot of people would think that they think that... Jack is Lars. Jack, well, yeah, I guess you can see Lars rejecting himself on Jack. Um, well, I mean, Lars isn't a serial killer or I, anything. I mean, but, but he's... It's sort, he's of like, it's, it's sort of like expressing the perverted perverted thoughts. It wouldn't be something that I, I, would, I would think that he would sort of want people to pick up. Because a lot of it's just... Um, he would explain something and then it would tie into... It would just come with, uh, with a strange punchline at the end. Uh, I'm just talking about the blatantly obvious visual metaphors that are repeated just mm. endlessly that just become obnoxious. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I get it. You're She's a lamb and you're the fox or whatever it was. It the wasn't tiger. a fox, a tiger. Sorry, I get it. 
The lamppost analogy. Yep, got it. Oh, we're seeing it again? Okay. Oh, oh, it, it, mm. oh fucking hell, Lars. Seriously? I don't need to see it ten times. Yeah, the the, un- the the repetitiveness people might find to be a bit annoying. I didn't think that it was too detrimental. But the um, film's two and a half hours long, yeah, though, and, and it just feels like long. it just feels like it's a it's a new cinematic technique that Lars von Trier, a new experimental technique that Lars von Trier is doing called padding out the runtime. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but that that would be my one of my least favorites of the year. I mean, uh, there's still I think I've seen a lot of films in 2018 that I would say is worse. Uh, including, we might as well get to most overhyped or most overrated, and I have no idea why people love this so much. But a quiet place is trash. Oh, yeah. A quiet. Have you seen a quiet place? No, since? not yet. A quiet um, place is. I mean, and the fact that it is getting awards attention at all, which apparently that's it is. Strange. It's, it's idiotic, is what it is, because I've never oh. seen a movie that just sets up that just breaks its own yeah, internal it logic, its own logic. Uh, almost immediately <laughs> i mean it's not even just a matter of um it breaking its own logic but also the characters just seem really stupid like they, i hear there are things like oh there's a dam and the, the and the the dam drowns out the sound or it acts as a cloak to these these aliens mm. And, and uh, they have electricity in their house. Yeah. And I'm like, where is the giant generator making all the noise that's powering this stupid thing? I know, it's, it's I mean, very bizarre. I mean, the characters are so stupid and apparently they, like, the film opens and it's like 87 days into the apocalypse or whatever. Mm. And these characters make so many s- s- ridiculously dumb decisions. I'm just like, how did you not, how are you not the first to kill to be killed off on day one? Yeah, it's like... I think what you mentioned, even in your review, what's a bit disappointing is that these uh, these aliens, um, which are supposed to be quite frightening, no, they're uh, just they're they're dollar well, store demogorgons. That's what they are. I don't know what they look like. Uh, I can't remember what they look like, but they, they didn't look interesting. Um, well, that, that's the problem. Like the trailer thinks it's going to be like a mystery to what these things actually are, yeah, but then they, just they show them in the first five minutes. But th- th- you, you mentioned that they can get easily killed with a with a shotgun. So that really sort of lessens the the threat of them. They get that, that's getting more into spoiler territory there. Oh. So I'll just say film fiasco because that we have to do a quiet place on there because I need to tear that movie to shreds <laughs> and tell everyone why their their opinion on that movie is wrong because it's terrible. But also overhyped, and we were, we were talking about this just before we started recording, and we've kind of discussed this on the show before, Ooh, so we won't yeah. go into too much. But Hereditary, it's just I will never get the praise for this film. Me neither. I mean, the first time I watched this in cinemas, I was laughing my ass off. I wasn't even alone. And then the second time I watched it, I was also laughing my ass <laughs> off. And half the people I brought with me were fucking laughing their ass off <laughs> too. But then again, the other half, uh, I don't know, thought it was it was very effective and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't think. I mean, this film's effective at certain things and very ineffective at other things. Yeah. I, I actually think the the first third of this film, like the first act of this film is genuinely great. Like there, there yeah. it, there's a lot of really good setup there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of good like visual storytelling. I think the style is really good. I think the score is also really good. Um yeah, the, the way Well, the I think the direction overall is just better in the in the first. Yes. The first third or first, whatever. First just, act, just yeah. That's that's where it's sort of when you're watching Hereditary, you think, okay, is this going to, uh, well, when I say you think, um, you sort of without some of these like subtle foreshadowings for what's going to happen later on. Uh, I'm sorry, on subtle film. foreshadowings. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> subtle emphasis. Uh, just quote. Here is your foreshadowing. <laughs> you see this dollhouse and the things inside it? 
subtle <laughs> foreshadowing uh, that will just point towards what will happen later on. You can sort of see the film as being a sort of psychological-based uh, family drama where the, the horror could be sort of uh, just in the mind instead of actually happening. But there is a bit of that later on the film, but it's a bit... But then they make it, like, overtly clear that, no, this is all real. Yeah, they make it overtly and clear that it's that's all real it and it could be being manipulated by some other force. And it's actually, it, it's weird because as soon as you find out that it's real, that's when yeah. I check out and I'm like, well, this is not scary anymore. But yeah, that's... Because this... It's, it's very true because once... And they and it's pretty overt when they when they they like the the film directly says oh this is all real with a with a very hilarious uh, interaction between two characters uh, which I think we talked about um, uh, on the episode with quite a bit of length just because of how bizarre it is it's just like it's just every, everything about it was really unnatural it's just someone coincidentally bumps into another person at an art store oh it's good to see you uh, did you know um, I saw a medium. Uh, and yeah. this medium uh, brought my grandson back to life, or something like that. I should, sh- I-, I can do it at home. Come with me. <laughs> it's, what? It's like no, nope. <laughs> just like nope. And then it's just when they're just dicking around the dark, and then like oh, some, some wind just blows the candle. Oh shit! Like the the reason the grandson's back. <laughs> like the reason it doesn't work for me is because after like once Anne Dowd comes into the picture, like I think this is a pretty soulless film. Mm. Like and I've seen some people try to defend this movie by saying like there's so much humanity in this. I'm like, no. Like these these characters are like doomed. As soon as as soon yeah. as that first big twist happened, like that big that big like character death that happens it's like very early on. It yeah, it's fatalistic and it's like, well why do I care now? Like first you're like, well I'm not going to see anything worse than that in this film. So this mm. movie came too early. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> it blew it pre- too pre- early. Premature, pre- premature film ejaculation, hereditary. <laughs> I mean, like this. Maybe when people say this humanity film, they might be talking about those little instances of uh, uh, vulnerability or, or just sort of like real distraught but it's uh, images of grief. But then you see that in a lot of other films. The Babadook did it better. Yeah, the Babadook. The Babadook had a much like more nuanced it's not uh, portrayal of you know mental illness and grief yeah. as well, and did did it with a lot more maturity it's as well. Strange because in 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 Hereditary, it only it only does that for a bit, and then it goes then it goes fully stupid with supernatural, uh, devil, uh, god king yep. or something. I don't know. It's a bit Pyman, I think his Pi- name was Pyman. <laughs> the pie man. The pie man. Is he the cream pie man? Is he going to throw... He, he's a clown. Pa- pie man is a clown. Face. He throws a cream pie at your face. However, I don't know why pie man's got a weird fetish for sticking different heads <laughs> and other bodies. I don't know. So he, I wouldn't want him to be I, my I mean, if this if this movie ends with like Alex Wolf in the treehouse and then Anne Dowd just throws a pie in his face, <laughs> five star movie. <laughs> I, I I would think that ending would make the film better, just just if, just if it just pulled a big. Because you know what's really funny? Some people are a bit annoyed with the ending because they just they they thought it was executed in such a strange way. They're like, this is really bizarre. And I thought, 
well, it's kind of fitting because a bunch of dumb shit happened earlier in the film. It, it, like, I was watching it as if it was a horror comedy. That's why I was laughing so much. Like, the guy fucking jumps out of a window just to yeah. climb up a treehouse. I'm like, what's going on? I mean, yeah. The, like, the funniest part, like, the, the most unintentionally hilarious moment for me, and, like, we've, like, laughed over this, is when oh. um, they're doing the seance, I guess, and, um, the like, the daughter that gets killed earlier in the film... Uh, possesses Tony Collette and is like, Mom, <laughs> Mom, is that mommy, you? Mommy, mommy. I'm like, this, this is supposed to be scary and I'm just sitting here laughing. I wish they would have had Tony Collette run into a wall and then she comes back to Tony Collette, something bizarre like that. You know, no, it's really weird because I, I think it's such like a horror comedy. I think I have a memory of that happening. Like, if, if you were to say that was in the film, I wouldn't be surprised. So what, so what you're saying is if Sam Raimi directed Hereditary, it'd be a much if better Sam film. If Sam Raimi directed Hereditary, it'd be like ten times better. It'd be scarier too, to be It'd be honest. scarier and it'd be much more intentionally funnier. Well, I'm just going to say this. Um, I'm not looking to Midsummer, which is Ari Aster's next film, which is apparently about like a... Uh, and more cultish happenings about two people that go to Sweden oh, on holiday. Christ, I don't like, want to watch another cult. cult film made by that bloke. And it's also A24 who are just becoming a parody of themselves at this point. Like, yeah. it's just like, th- there's a formula to their films now. It's just, it's either like indie horror that's, like, yeah, it's indie horror or it's like these weird, these coming it's of age, fi- coming like of age these, yeah. things. I don't know what to call them. Yeah. Sort of like multi-genred in mm. a sense. I mean, do you remember when independent cinema was about getting away from cliche yeah. and the norm, and now that's, that's all that independent really cinema bizarre, is the, now? The independent cinema, it's just, it's become like a smaller scale Hollywood, mm. in a sense. Because uh, the, 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 the money you put into a lot of these independent films is a lot more than what you would have got back in the days of Soderbergh. Um, making his, or Gustav Sand making their independent films on like a shoestring budget. Or go even further back to someone like Fassbinder or Suzuki just making, like, a film a month or something on a couple of thousand dollars. We have gone a bit off tra- off track, but that's all right. It's a podcast. Uh, what would you say is your favourite film for the year? I've got mine, and we haven't talked about it on the show yet. So um, This is interesting because I think my favourite film um, would be The Wolf House, which I saw recently. Uh, that's that animated film, yeah. right? Yeah, I it's an animated uh, film, but German and Spanish. Um, it's a Chilean film. I think it's it? Chilean. Yeah, it was very, very interesting. The, the visual style is like it, it's stop motion, but they they end up doing stuff like painting on on walls, and also yeah, they, 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 like they keep painting. Like it would have took a lot of would have took a lot of time to to make the film uh, the way it was with mixing like. Uh, as I mentioned before, painting on walls and um, uh, playing around with like models and stuff like that. Yeah, because I saw it was on movie for a bit, and I was like, "This looks cool." And then just uh, I had it like saved and like on my at the watch list. And mm. then the bad thing about movie is it expires after thirty yeah. days, and completely forgot about it, and it was gone. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I really wanted to check it out though. Well, when you get the n- next opportunity to check it out, I, I really think you should because it's. I mean, I haven't seen. I haven't really seen any animation that's just like it. Right. It sort of reminds me a bit of um. Does it remind you of like a Michelle Gondry kind? No, not Michelle Gondry. Like um, oh, like a c- kind of like Michelle like a bit like Gondry a nom- in like the like Anomalisa or something like that. Not really Anomalisa. There's a uh, it reminds me of this Czech animator that made um like a like a Faust and a 
like an Alice in Wonderland uh, film. Okay. It's like a mixture of animation and live action. Like, wrong you, sort of like his films. But it kind of reminds me a bit of Michel Gondry because he likes to do stuff like playing around with a with a with a background, making it look kind of crafty, um, as you see in like the Sleep of Science. Mm. So there's yeah a bit of that because mm. it's playing around with both the with the the background and um, the foreground as well. Mm. The Science of Sleep, I think you mean, which I yeah, also, which, which was sleep. on was on movie recently, and I caught it, and it was yeah it was really good. And uh, I just want to quickly, I'll just quickly run through my top 10 that I had for this year. Like, I'll just quickly say something about him. Like, at uh, t- Three Faces, which I said earlier, mm. Jafar Panahi's film, um, absolutely loved it. Uh, he won the prize for Best Screenplay at Cannes for the film. And because yeah. he's on his travel ban, because of his, you know, ban yeah. from filmmaking, he had to receive his award at the Tehran airport. <laughs> yeah, Three Faces is a fantastic film. And it, it's, it's just, it's classic Panahi. Like, it's his... Very warm and sentimental yeah. filmmaking, but also at the same time, like expressing like these re- expressing and like all these. How, how do I say he, it? So he sort of talks about all these uh, issues that he has with, with yeah. Iran, like in terms of things like censorship, with terms like censorship, and like and especially sort of especially with three faces, like feminism as well yeah. is a big part of that too. Feminism and also how how people view filmmaking in a sense too. Mm. Um. Which is interesting how they, they don't seem to just view their filmmakers as artists as much and sort of see them as sort of being entertainers mm. in a sense, which is uh, which I don't think... Uh, well, I think Panahi the Iranian likes. government sees like Panahi and like his contemporaries as more like propagators against the yeah. regime than yeah. artists, though. That's yeah, they, w- they would that's see... That's a bit of a problem, so... Yeah, they would probably see them as just blasphemers. Three Faces, I, I really enjoyed. I thought it was a very nice uh, film. It is a good um, return to form for Panahi because this is him going back to making more narrative mm. um, style films, which mm. is good. He's still playing himself in these yeah. films, though. Yeah, but I, I but I like that. That's how he makes his films. Mm. Like his band has forced him to be more creative with his sto- with his filmmaking. Yeah, like he he's trying to find ways to like make films legally while not being able to make films. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because uh, Panahi is a good example for a filmmaker for even when he has all these restrictions, he could still make a, uh, quite a good quality made film. Mm. And it's funny because he seems to sort of be uh, having a sort of, so, sort of seems to be annoying the uh, his, his travel ban to the extent of going right to the borders of Iran yeah. to, to shoot his film. <laughs> To to sort of signal that he's still you know pushing the boundaries, even though he's just he's he's put in a situation where he's where he's being watched carefully, and um you know it's he has to be careful of what he does, otherwise he could be jailed again, mm. and, and other stuff like that. Speaking of filmmakers doing the most they can with the restrictions that they're given, Gustav Muller's The Guilty as well oh, was yeah. one of my favourites of the year. We've discussed this on the show before, so I won't say too much about it. It's a great contained real-time thriller that was just... For a movie that's essentially a guy making a bunch of phone calls for 80 minutes, it is so good. It's, it's, it's very impressive how the film could just, just really just capture your attention for the whole time when it's just as minimalistic as just a... As, as Sean mentioned before, just a police officer talking through a headpiece for just ma- majority of the film. It's it's so small scale. It could just be. It could even be translated into um, 
like a like a stage play. I wouldn't be surprised mm. if it was adapted from a stage play. Uh, it's an original script, I believe. Oh wow! But speaking of other ad- adaptations, uh, this there recently an American remake, an American English language remake was announced that is going to be starring Jake Gyllenhaal. It, uh, it, it won't be as good. Uh, it, it, it can't. Oh be. yeah. Oh. Yeah, I don't. I, no, I can don't definitely see so. this as a play too, though. Like what you're saying. But they're going to shoot it incorrectly. The American, nah. they're not going to do with the with the, the extreme close. You, th- you think they're going to have cutaways to? No, the they're going to no. shoot. They're going to shoot Jake Gyllenhaal talking in a in like a medium where you can mm. see everything on the desk and you can see him like center frame or something like I mean, far away. Maybe if you get the guy that did Lock to direct this movie, then oh. it might be good. Yeah, well, the is is Lock the film where um, it's Tom Hardy in a car yeah. making a bunch of phone calls to people. Yeah. Yeah, which is how I described the guilty initially. It's like the lock. It's like lock meets the call. Mm. Is the wait? Which is the call? Is that the, the call? Farrell? No, the call is the that's phone booth. Oh, that's phone booth. <laughs> uh, the call is the one where Halle Berry is the nine one one call operator, and Abigail Breslin gets like kidnapped by somebody, and oh. she's like trying to help her. It, it's kind of like that, except you, you cut away to. Abigail Branslin in the trunk of this guy's car. Apparently, it's really stupid and, like, (laughs) not very good. But uh, uh, another film that I had here that we've talked about briefly and actually gets a wide release in Australia in April, uh, Woman at War. Uh, uh, The the Icelandic film about the the eco-warrior woman. It was just... It's so good. It's it's just got so much energy. It's got this very quirky kind of, you know, like Nordic uh, Scandinavian humour that they're kind of known for as well. The soundtrack is fantastic. And the way that the soundtrack is incorporated in the film, like the band that's playing the soundtrack, like it's all diegetic music. And this band is playing, is like live scoring all of her actions. (laughs) And it is, it's a family guy joke that works so well (laughs) in the narrative film. And I just, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I'm unfortunate. I haven't seen Woman at War yet, but when it comes around, I'm going to make sure I definitely watch it. Mm. Another film. And and as I mentioned, like a lot of foreign language films have, uh, have been up here. And this is another one. Uh, Anne-Marie Jassia's Wajib, a Palestinian uh, father-son bonding road trip comedy. This is one of the funniest films of the year. Um, It's so, again, it's a very Panahi like film as well. Like it's just, it has these, it has this very warm sentimentality to it while also addressing like these very, like having very scathing commentary of like you know like intergenerational clashes and like uh the pol- like political unrest in Israel towards Palestinians and mm. it's such as I mean the movie has a really funny ISIS joke and I, that that is something I <laughs> never would have expected but it's it's great. Well, that's that's uh it's very good then if it's able to make jokes about something so uh something some material that you wouldn't really uh joke about something rather taboo mm. in a sense or heavy and able to make successful jokes out of it mm. and this movie like like panahi also addresses censorship because um the son says like um the reason because he, he the, the premise of the film is that he comes back to his hometown to for his sister's wedding and in their in their, like their local tradition when the bro- when a bride is getting married their father and the father and brother of the bride have to deliver the wedding invitations to all the guests and so that's yeah. that's the, the that's the that's how this film is framed. It's a road trip comedy of these uh, this estranged father and son doing their duty, delivering these things, and like you know, catching up and yeah. like bonding over over in the process. And yeah, and then like it, it back to the, what I was saying about censorship. Uh, he says the reason why he had to leave uh, pa- um, why he has to re- leave Israel was because 
uh, apparently when he was in high school, like uh, a, an Israeli secret service agent was investigating him and like, like that he was like spreading propaganda uh, throughout, oh. like uh, anti-Israeli propaganda. He was like, I started a film club at university. And it's like, yeah, the films were too political and all this stuff. So like it also addresses <laughs> the idea of censorship, much like Panahi as well. That's that's very interesting. That's that's something that you uh, that that was a film that you really liked. I loved I loved um, Wajib. W- w- was it Wajib? Wajib, yeah. yeah when you it, it's it. also called Wajib, the wedding invitation in some places. So if you, yeah, it's one w- one of the best like comedies of it. And another probably the best film, best Australian film of the year was Sweet Country, Warwick Thornton's oh, second yeah. second feature narrative film, easily the best Australian film of the year, and probably one of the best Australian films of the 2010s. Yeah, it's a, it's good that we get a a film that seems to get a, a bit of um, talk, not just like on the national level, but on an international level mm. as well. Was uh, nominated for the Golden Lion at Venice in twenty seventeen. Yeah. I mean, it's very much like this gen. I guess like it's probably still in it. It's the new rabbit proof fence. I think in oh, showing right. how the the, the mistreatment the, the mistreatment of native you know, Australians went under. Uh, in colonial rule, would would does this film well, sort not of not necessarily colonial rule? It's the it's the it's set in the late nineteen twenties. Oh, and it's okay. About I thought it was, was set earlier. It's a, it's about an indigenous man that uh, shoots a white farmer because mm. like he provoked him and like he tried to he's killed him in self defense and but because you know Aboriginal yeah. so a white man he goes they, on the run they they would they would capture him and they would yeah. say that it was premeditated and they would mm. jail him for life. Yeah, it's such. It's a brilliantly shot film. Like Warwick Thornton, who has a background as a cinematographer as well, also shot the film himself, mm. and it just looks incredible. Uh, I noticed on the second viewing that there was no, there's no musical score to this film whatsoever. Oh, really? And it is, it, it just works so well. Well, I, I, I'd, I'd assume it would if this film were to, to be so serious with its material. Mm. Wouldn't want anything to sort of sway it. But it also just lets the sound design breathe and, like, you know, just it just fully encapsulates you into this environment and especially into, like, these, you know, very barren Australian. Yeah. Like, that's what the best Australian films either show the beauty or the horror of the Australian environment. <laughs> and it kind of does both here in Sweet Country. Mm. Now that's 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 very interesting that observation because I do see that in a lot of films. Yeah, I mean, I wish I saw S- Sweet Country. I think I actually have a copy of it at home on Blu-ray. Yeah, definitely. Which so. I which I should definitely watch. But it's 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 good to see that we're still getting some films that are being watched internationally because we don't seem to do too well. Um, our cinema doesn't seem to be doing too well on the on an international level, which has mm. been unfortunate. But then, like sometimes, like a film, a film will get no attention here, and then it will get like massive attention overseas, and then we'll act, we'll pretend like we cared about it. Like when <laughs> the Babadook first came out, no one, oh yeah, no one, no knew. one cared. It, no, it, it enough, had like a yeah. week at the Nova, and like everyone completely slept on it. And then, like <laughs> it, I think it premiered at like like South by Southwest or like one of the big American festivals, and then it got huge there. And then Australians were all like, "Oh yeah, no, no, we." It was never in doubt. Like, you know, we, we 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 love the Babadook. We completely love the Babadook. Yeah. Mm. Speaking of which, and this is a big point of contention for me, uh, Jennifer Kent's second film, The Nightingale, it was meant to come out this week in Australia, but because it was announced, because um, Sundance is about to start yeah. in in a couple of days' time, and um, it got announced to be playing. It's playing at Sundance, so because of this, its Australian release has been pushed back, oh. which is bullshit. Well, they must they must think that it's going to do much better on an international level if they're going to do that. Then, so it it's just it baffles me. It really does baffle me. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit unfortunate because it, it would have been nice for us to see the films that 
were made here first before everyone else gets to see them. Mm. You, you would think so, wait. wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. You think that would, that would always usually be the case, but it, it, it isn't in um, some instances. All right. Um, another film that I have here, like that, in, that in my top ten as well, that I absolutely love, and Eric has seen this one, so we can say let's say this one as well. Uh, Paolo Pavlikovsky's Cold War. Mm. I've seen this three times now. I am in <laughs> love with this film. This. I think you seem to enjoy it more and more with every. Watch. Yeah, because when I first saw it at Sydney, I was like, this was good, but I kind of feel a bit of a disconnect to it. When I saw it at Miff, like it just clicked. Mm. Like everything just clicked. Like I completely fell in love with the film. Like uh, there really isn't a part that I don't like, except for like the last 30 seconds and the final lines of the film. Yeah. Irk me just a little bit, yeah, but I can look bit. past it. doesn't it. seem to bother me too much. I can look past I it I can though. see why um, you can, you're a bit annoyed by it, but because it's just so small, it's, I don't know. It's, to me, it seems so insignificant. It doesn't really matter too much. Mm. Like, um, like I think like that scene at the end could be just as effective with that line that bothers you in it. And uh, with it, it, just as it would be without, to but be honest. Everything leading up to it, though, is almost perfect. Yeah. Like, I think that, first of all, Joanna Cooley gave the best performance of any actor or actress in 2018. Like, oh, she definitely. is on a, another level in this film. She's, she's like, the, the main attraction in the film, really. Because mm. uh, she's got... She has so much variety she has and so range much, within the film. She, has so, she shows off a lot of range. Like, mm. I mean, her acting as well. She can sing incredibly. Like, her, like Ooh, it, yeah. her physical performance as well. Her dancing is just incredible. Like, she is on a whole other level in this film. I mean, this is like performance in two senses. As, 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 as in the way of uh, performing for the film and literally just doing stage performances mm. and, and scene performances within the film. I mean, it's a crime she's not even being talked about for Oscars. Yeah, it's very strange. Because I honestly thought that she she would have gotten a nomination just for for her, how good her performance is. And the Oscars, they, they seem to really like sort of that musical-esque performance mm. where someone does actually do some singing and dancing. Well, I think the thing is that they don't want to nominate to... Um, Two foreign la- like two foreign language actresses in the same ca- in in the same category in one year because I think Yelitsa Aparicio is going to get a nomination for Roma, yeah, and I don't yeah. think they want they, you got to have your what's American la- you got to have yeah, your American they, ladies they want their in American there. ladies in there. Oh well, too bad if the ladies from overseas are doing much better. But yeah, Cold War. It's just it's the best shot film of the of the entire of the entire year. Like Luca so? uh cinematography is it's very nice, unbelievable. It's very uh, on a technical level. I don't think you could really fault anything with the camera work because it's the the picture so crystal clear. I think it and might the framing is is, is is or the composition within the framing is quite good. I mean, it works very well with the um with the black the and Academy white ratio. With the Academy ratio. And like it really just centers like that the, the Academy ratio really centers your focus mm. to what's like to the char- especially with characters on yeah. screen. It just well they 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 work very well because they do they work very well with the quadrants with the with placing characters in corners and also the good a really good thing with the um because it's a romance film when they shoot it close it feels mm. more intimate because, definitely because you can you can you, you can see more of what's important and it's framed in. In, in, a, in a warmer sort of like a box shape instead of like the big wide uh, sort of more barren um, 
widescreen, which is better for landscapes. And I love how the focus never draws away from the characters. Like, there's all nah. this other stuff happening in the background, like yeah. that I'm not exactly aware of because I'm not th- I'm not too big on Cold War history. I don't know a whole lot about like the time and like what was actually happening there. But I I, I think it's all the better for it though. Like all that stuff. I mean, it's kind it's important. Well, this is interesting because. Be- um, because a, a film you like, Suspiria, yeah. that draws a lot of attention to what's happening in the background. Yeah, I think it does. it's pretty damn pointless. But Cold War um, just just briefly mentions a lot of that Cold War history in the in the background, but doesn't make a big deal out of it. It just ha- it's like part of the scenery, all of that mm. that history, and the, and the what's happening in the foreground, the romance is the most important part. But that's kind of like what my other favorite film, like my favorite film of the year, which we might as well talk about now because we haven't talked about it on the show yet. Uh, yeah. Roma, like Roma does that as well. Like th- yeah. it, it, there's all this historic, like there's all this like very important like political and social and like the social happenings that were ha- that was going on in Mexi- mm. in Mexico around like the early 70s that happened but the focus never draws away like never takes away from the characters especially the scene where the Corpus Christi massacre happens when they're in the yeah. department store like you see you see it from the character's perspective but the focus is never drawn away from them yeah i mean, I, I thought that whole instance was very impressive how it was done in the film because it draws from them watching what was happening outside and it just mm. brings that into the shop mm. I'm not going to say too much about Roma as well because, again, I have a written review on Movie Babble for this as well, but it's the best film of 2018 in my eyes. Do you think Cold War would be better shot than Roma? I think Cold War is better shot, but, I, I mean, it's 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 so close. I don't know because I, I kind of like Roma better just because of, um, just cause of the, the, the movement, the camera movement. I, I seem to like a lot more. Mm. Um, then again, I, I think... The film that Palakowski made uh, before Cold War, Eater. Um, you think Eater's Ida better? Is much better shot. It's okay. actually, it's shot with more purpose, I think, okay. which is I why I like it better. I need to but see Cold Eater. War looks very nice still. Roma is just such a I wouldn't say hypnotic. It's just such an entrant like it's got a, it's good it's the the camera work has a nice rhythm to it in a sense where it just seems to sort of flow mm. sort of like that's very cool there's a, there's on, a fair bit it? of yeah there's a fair bit of like imagery to do with water and stuff so it sort of mm. flows like planes as the, well like the tide yeah and planes um look the camera work sort of is, is it, like the move at such a speed is as if uh Coron was sort of remembering these things as if, as if he was walking down these pl- uh, down mm. where was it set again uh, mexico city mexico city um and he's just seeing his his memories just washing over mm. all the, the the imagery that you would see now. Well, that works well because according to Quaron, ninety percent of this film is drawn from his own memories. Yeah, so. I heard about that. I'm not surprised that that, that that the film is sort of shot in this this strange sort of flowy uh, way, where it's just like the memories flowing out of his out of his mind. Mm. And what I and something that really annoys me in movies is the struggles of the of the middle class and all this kind of stuff, like yeah. I, uh, of like the bourgeois middle class, and oh, doesn't it suck to be you know rich? And I, I hate those movies, but Roma, yeah. especially doing it through the eyes of um of from the, the perspective of the maid, of, yeah, this more humble, very grounded perspective of the maid, like it, it's a film that sees even with the most conflicted characters, it mm. sees the humanity in all people. And it's a film that finds the beauty beauty in the mundane and the or- and the ordinary. Mm. 
Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, this film it doesn't actually really sort of gallivant a bit like, oh, you know, look how luxurious it is to be bourgeoisie, but then talk about like, oh, existential struggles and 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 whatnot, just things like, oh, you know, a person, a bourgeoisie person like myself has so many opportunities, but what do I do? Like, oh, wow, it's so hard. I don't have to worry about what am I go- what I'm going to eat tomorrow or anything like that. Mm. Like one, of, I mean, this is a strange comparison, but a movie and that also could be one of the most overhyped movies of the year, Thoroughbreds. That movie was just, oh, doesn't it suck being rich and white and aren't all rich white kids complete psychopaths? Oh, goodness. I'm like, oh, I never need to see this in a movie ever again. Please stop. But luckily, like, this movie doesn't mm. have that at all. Like, it has it has a much more grounded, much more humble look at them. And it, mm. it, it does, yeah, as I said, it doesn't judge the people, even, even like, Fermin, the character, mm. the, the character who's... Um, oh, who knocks up the maid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> knocks up the maid. <laughs> I was trying to be a bit more sensitive than that, but you just jump well, in, yeah. jump straight in with that. <laughs> well, it's it's pretty much what happens. Uh, I mean, yeah. you're but right but in the sense where even he's not really completely demonized. No, um, like he is, he is shown in a negative light when they bring him back. Mm. But it's not, it's not but too, it's not like done in such a sense like, oh, how could he have done this? It's sort of, it sort of treats it in a sense where this is kind of commonplace yeah it's like he not not that like he doesn't have a choice but like yeah. this is his life like yeah. this is how that's just how he is that's he, how he lives and that's how he's his mates he seem like to be represents so much like interpersonal conflict but also like conflict within like mm. me- a, a lot of conflict with the, what was happening in mexico at the time as well yeah well that character is is, is actually quite interesting because he's, he's he's sort of a minor character but you you're right in the sense where it's showing a, a fair bit of like like into conflict with what was happening at the time because a man like that is he sort of he, he takes up what was it like kung fu and stuff mm. he, he seems to be this sort of like rather angsty man that's not sure of what he wants to become of himself so he he joins kung fu thinking that it will better himself but then again he does something else like uh well this would be a bit of a spoiler but he ends up uh taking part in the massacre mm. which sort of shows how how um sort of vulnerable some of the minds were at the time uh where it was a it was a time of, of civil unrest um and yeah i mean this film just has two of the most emotionally devastating scenes i've witnessed in a film in oh, quite yeah. a while like the the hospital scene <laughs> i mean it's the hospital scene and as well as the beach scene like they are just mm. It's again like the f- there's all this stuff happening that like the fo- the focus never pulls away from uh, what's the name of the character ah uh, what's her name what's the name of the maid I don't remember uh, you you just said her name like oh my goodness no it's not Le- Lebo is the name this. of the actual name uh, uh, no. fuck I'm gonna look it up quickly <laughs> <laughs> it'll it'll come to me it'll come to me but anyway the, the maid's character the one that Yulitza Aparicio is the uh, is the actress but yeah. And especially her, for someone who was a kindergarten teacher in New Mexico, yeah. who's never had any acting experience, to bring so much to her character is—it's it, phenomenal. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting how um he, he, 
El Coron sort of films it like a pseudo uh, near realist film by having non-actors mm. and actors as such. I think there's it's only nice to see. three proper actors in the entire film. Oh, really? Film. Yeah. The, mo- the mother of the family is an actor and the Lucha Libre guy that teaches... Oh, yeah. Is he yeah. an actor? Yeah. He, Latin Lover is his name. <laughs> he, well, he, he's, he's a Lucha Libre wrestler in mm. Mexico, but he's also done a couple of bits. He's done acting before, so... What was it... Um it's interesting because some people actually criticize Roma for thinking that it's sort of, it lacks a bit of originality because they think it borrows too much from what it's, it's inspired by, oh, okay. which I don't really think is the case too much because it's, it's shot a lot differently, but, um, but yeah, I can sort of see those comparisons being drawn in the sense of, uh, um, him trying to make the film sort of neo-realist, shooting it black and white, etc. Sort of how those films were done back then. But I think he, he executes it differently enough where it sort of stands on its own, uh, separate from those films. If anything, it's sort of more of a, uh, like an interpretation of how you would do a, like a film like that now than back then. And especially when this film is a lot more personal and reflective and it isn't... Um, exactly sort of expressing something that happened relatively recently doing some sort of social commentary such as something like uh, a De Sica film like Bicycle Thieves mm. so um, yeah, I like it I like Roma a lot uh, I don't know about like best film of the year but I, I like it a lot more now than I think on it I'm not I was a bit harsh when I when I first watched it because um, I was just I don't know um I think I might have been expecting a bit more narrative, but uh, I like sort of how was the film was quite unfocused in the sense that it, it's sort of just examining the, the the time period and sort of these different facets of of of, of that yep. time period with yeah, um, just of everyday life. Yeah, just the everyday life back then. So it's just showing like it's, it's laid in, in the way where there's the maid, there's the um, the middle class family around her, and then there's the men outside. Cleo was the name of the maid, by the oh. way. I knew it. I knew it. I just had to double check. <laughs> I know you knew it because you said it before we recorded this. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Um, I'll just quickly go through some of my other favourites because we've talked about them a bit on the podcast as well. Uh, Hirokazu Koreeda's Shoplifters, uh, the Palm Door winning film. Mm. Amazing. Just such a beautiful and nuanced look at, at you know, what it is to bel- belonging and family and, you know, just showing that, it's an ex- ex- examination of you don't have to be a family to become a family. Yeah. It's just, it's so good. Uh, Sakura Ando gives one of the, just an incredible performance in this film. Uh, young Joe, Joe Kyrie gives another good performance as well. It's just such a beautiful film. Uh, Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, the best English language film of last year. This is just such a brutal and uncompromising oh, film. Yeah. That's just and after reading the novella and seeing the changes that Lynn Ramsey like and how Lynn Ramsey adapted this like it's easily like the fact that this isn't getting best adapted screenplay nominations is insane. <laughs> like it's so, like and the two best scenes of the film I think I might have said this the two best scenes of the film are like two sentences long in the book the scene the scene where the two henchmen are dying on oh, the on the yeah. ground that's like. The henchman, di- yeah, Joe lies on the ground with yeah. the henchman while he dies. And the lake scene, Joe goes to the lake and buries his mother. That's literally what they are in the book. And it just shows you how incredible a visual storyteller and filmmaker that Lynn Ramsey is to mm. take those like throwaway lines from the book 
and just you know just like very not extraneous but just like just moving the plot forward in the book but she was able to make something just incredibly hauntingly beautiful about two of those things and it just yeah it's it's it's, it's interesting how she's able to flesh something out like that uh like those those two scenes with her, with her own interpretation of of how she would visualize it and, and and make that work with with the rest of what she's adapted and still have it flow efficiently as you said because uh you never really hear is not a long film and it doesn't it doesn't film like feel like a long film um it's a it's a very efficiently made film with really good consistent um pacing and not, not only that but as you said it's a very beautiful film like um we're, we're criticizing what was it hereditary about lacking humanity Strangely enough, uh, mm. uh, you were never really here. Like a lot of Lynn Lim Ramsey's films has a lot of humanity into it, where uh, Joe is such a broken character, where she's just mm. sort of shining this 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 uh, this light on him. Where we getting this this interesting look about what's the the workings of his mind and his behaviors, and it just how how sort of unfortunate and tragic the character is. While at the same time, he's sort of uh, trying to live with being in such a broken state and trying to sort of connect with with the other characters or sort of to try and find meaning onto why he should go along because he because the the, yeah. the way he behaves he doesn't seem to like living that much no, at all. Do- and if you read the book that becomes incredibly apparent <laughs> and that's something that Lynn Ramsey just like nailed completely and it's just, it's done with like speaking of what I was saying about the Babadook and how that did certain things about mm. hereditary with a lot more maturity like this film does it's incredibly mature in how mm. it deals with its subject matter. I mean, Lynn, Lynn Ramsey is really cementing herself as being this really impressive filmmaker that people should really focus on because she doesn't make films often. No. Whenever she makes a film, it's really was good. It, we need to talk about Kevin was her last film. Yeah, it was her last and film. And she got fired from Jane's got a, Jane Got a Gun, I think, and that movie ended yeah. up being terrible. So Yeah. <laughs> I mean, apparently she was going to... She was going to make a uh, Moby Dick film in space, which is what? which sounded crazy. I, I thought, oh, isn't that God. what High Life is? Isn't that isn't that what Claire Denise's Claire Denise <laughs> High Life is? <laughs> I haven't watched the trailer because I'm avoiding it, but that look, that's what High Life looks like. That's what I've seen from High Life. Like I was thinking Passengers, but it's a boy and a father. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a lovely film. Um, you'll never really hear because because uh, uh, even though Joe's is really brutal. He can be this really brutal man mm. at times. He's got this strange childlike innocence. So it's like, so it's sort of yep. like a, a child hiding into the into the the body of a beast, or the beast hiding mm. into the body of a child. And I think Joaquin, like, Fe- I mean, I think Joaquin Phoenix is a huge reason why this film works. Oh too. yeah, like he is unbelievable. I, d- I can't see many f- like actors that could have sort of pull off that uh, like a role with such intensity. Mm. Like it's 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 strange because I watched a uh, what was it. I watched a Y Master review on Old Boy and Josh Brolin was talking about, oh, this is like my hardest role, but like, like no matter how much effort he put into it, well, like what was the end result was like terrible. Um, you're never going to get like a problem with that, I think, with Joaquin Phoenix. And e- even in a mediocre role, he's yeah. very impressive. I always find it strange when directors that make these incredibly brutal and just like emo, yeah, just mm. these emotionally draining films because they're just so. You know, uncompromising yeah. and 
or it's, doesn't doesn't really have any restraints. Yeah, it's it just, very it, raw. It, it it doesn't really doesn't really give you time to breathe. It doesn't really give you time to breathe, and it just it's these very relentless and very brutal films. But you find mm. out th- when you when you see interviews with the filmmakers, they seem like the sweetest yeah. people ever. <laughs> well, and then you see films, it's like oh in a, in a oh I didn't expect that. The films are very brutal, but yeah, she's a she's a very bright. And cheery woman. <laughs> and it's really funny when you hear her talk about uh, you were never really here because you have people like like Mark Commode would, would say, "Oh, um, did you put this on the television um, to to sort of um, point out to this this idea?" And she said, "No, we just we just <laughs> asked what the actress wanted to to watch the television." She said, "Psycho." <laughs> but <laughs> by the so way, very that, humble that, too. That just reminded me of one of the worst fan theories I heard about you were never really here. Oh God! Do I want to hear it? You do because it's related to Psycho, and it's like thinking oh, the the Psycho no. thing was intentional. Jesus! It's it, it's a theory that Joe had an incestuous relationship with his mother, and that's why he cares about her so much. That's so which ridiculous. Is that is that's ridiculous. The, the 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 relationship's like just it's not sexual at all. No. If anything, it's like it's like a. It's bring like up Jason d- Voorhees. What the fuck? Yeah, I like I bring up the dichotomy of like the the child and the beast with 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 him and his mother. It's sort of like. Like it's like the the mother and the child, but in a sense where it's like um, Joe was sort of taking on the role as, of, of parenting the mother because she's she's in such a frail state. But it's it's strange. You sort of in in you were never really here. He needs he needs something to sort of care about. Otherwise, it's just he doesn't really have much of a reason to live because he sort of builds his existence around caring for 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 an entity like his mother or. Or later on, the the little girl in the film. Yeah, it, it, it was a ridiculous theory that That's I laughed off as soon as I theory. saw that. I mean, I've watched you never really hear multiple times. Yeah, I've seen it twice now, and I didn't. <laughs> and like, and like the the connections to Psycho are just like less and less. Like it's just, I mean, like you you hear uh, them singing, and then you, that they'll be reincorporated later in the film multiple times and that's when that happens that's just to sort of signify just how childlike joe is because mm. he's as i said he's like a he's like a just this, this childlike man that's got a dark side to him also before we just quickly change topic uh johnny greenwood's score is just oh yeah i I mean, some people were talking about the the Tom York, the Thom Yorks, uh, Th- Thom York, yeah, Tom Thumb Yorks, <laughs> uh, the, the 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 York score being better. Nah, but the Yorks Greenwood isn't, Yorks isn't a score. He just did like five or six original songs, didn't he? I did think he do so. any composition? I, I think he might have done some ambient stuff. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the hell he did on that. But some people think that's a lot better than Greenwood. So Suspirium no, is no uh, way. Uh, we're just on that. Suspirium is a great song. Suspirium by Tom York for Suspiria. I think we just think the song in the end credits. I think that song oh, I can't re- works that really song, well. But, but that song playing when uh, sp- spoiler um, there's that, that end ritual sequence in the bass. Yep. That was ugh, that was it terrible. Was <laughs> that was like not just an unfitting song, but what was happening as well was really bizarre. Yeah. It's like I was watching some Jean Roll and <laughs> exploitation French like yeah. film instead of something giallo. It was bizarre. The last film in my uh, top uh, top films of the year, which will surprise no one, and we're not going to talk about it very much again because we've discussed mm. it on the show before. But Foxtrot, incredible. Oh yes, I love this film. It's I still think it's one of the strongest films uh, that I saw last year. I think you you won't find a lot of people talking about Foxtrot. 
um, as a fil- 2018 film because a lot of them count as a 2017. Yeah, film. well, I, I, it, as I said, it but came yeah, to festivals here in Australia. Yeah. We saw it. It got released here in, in, in 2018, so and we're counting it as a 2018. It, it got shortlisted for the Oscars uh, last year in 2017 too, which it just missed out on, which yeah. is, I think, got robbed significantly. Because it's a very impressive film um, in, in a lot of aspects, like cinematography, performance... I mean, this film has some very interesting... Screenwriting, screenwriting, And definitely. screenwriting, too. I mean, like, I'd, I was I was a bit annoyed with, like, a certain thing that sort of happens at the end. S- similar like to Cold War, like, the very end. Similar to Cold end. War, yeah. Look, I, I'm, I'm not too fussed with the... I you think, know, look, I think it's a better film if you don't have that final scene yeah. in there, but I still think that it's just... Like, I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Well, it's not too detrimental to the film, just like how I don't think that... that how Cold War ended, it's not that detrimental. If they, if they did it in, mm. in a slightly different way, I still think it wouldn't make too much of a difference. That's, you know, how how much I think it sort of doesn't affect the film too much. Mm. In this case, like, a, I, I think it harms a film more, but it's not terrible in, in a sense. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I agree. If that, if that, if that particular scene uh, that I didn't like was removed... It, should it, I mention it? I think I mentioned it earlier. Uh, we'll, we'll, um, I think we'll leave. We'll leave it. We'll just leave it out. They would probably, if, if someone had a similar gripe, they would understand. It, it would have been like the. It would have had a much more like emotionally impactful ending. Yeah. I think it, it, if if it was less ambiguous as yeah. to what actually happened instead of the last scene yeah. like showing you what happened. I think it would have been a lot stronger as it if if they left it more ambiguous because that's because because when it did that because I transition think back home it's it actually. It takes a bit of time to sort of adjust to what exactly happened. Yeah, but then also I think the final shot before that is the two parents both they're scarred, but they they both yeah. have scars on their hands and they're both coming over and holding yeah. each other. I'm like, that is a brilliant final shot yeah. to have. So that would have been fine to leave it there. Or or even if they cut back to the first, what was the first shot, which is a very nice first shot as uh, for mm. the film, which I really liked because you because you, you learn about its importance later on in the film. But yeah, Foxtrot. Oh, I mean, we've talked a lot about um, how much we enjoy Foxtrot. It's a very impressive film. That will lead into our next little bit. Uh, Foxtrot contains my favourite scene of the year, which is like <laughs> the weirdest transition you will ever see in any film. It goes from so the first act of Foxtrot is this very. It's it's kind of like a little one act play. Yeah. And it's very emo- like it's an emotionally it's very wrecking, very self contained, very very grim and very mm. depressing and then it transitions into this a slightly more light-hearted second act with a dance sequence that yeah. comes right out of nowhere <laughs> and it's just by two characters that you never see again afterwards yeah. as well i'm like this shouldn't work but it's perfect how did this like how did they get this to work i i i mean i i think it just it works so well just because of how strange and jarring the the transition is and just how it's just it's just it's just a bunch of char- like characters, as you said, that we, we we never see again. Just mention something that becomes a lot more important later on in the film. But I, it it does introduce the idea of the foxtrot and yeah. like you know the theme like no no matter where no matter which direction you yeah, go, you always end up in the same spot. spot, which is very you know hence the title. Yeah, and that you know has very big thematic weight later on in oh, the film yeah. when the father tells this incredibly like heartbreaking story. Any other big scenes that were highlights for you? I mentioned the beach scene in Roma. That was absolutely amazing. Oh, there's quite a few uh, really great scenes in Foxtrot. Like, 
this would be a spoiler spoiler again, but um, the cause which causes the sun oh, to be moved. Yeah, like that was that was uh, that was very impressive. It's a massive shock it. too. Yeah. Like you have, it's oh, it's a it's a it's a huge shock just because of how uh, how well directed it is. Because it's just it, like it 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 opens rather light hearted. You sort of see like this uh, the the son who's guarding the gun exchange looks with this girl in the car, and um. The, the the officer that's sort of handling their identifications mm. uh, sees a beer can fall yeah, out of sees the a beer can fall out of the the car when mistakes someone, it for a grenade yeah he mistakes it for a grenade and the car gets sh- he just shoots up the the car without even just like thinking about and it and you're just like it's just like a like a like an Im- well not even an impulse it's like a oh, it's a very it? reactionary yeah thing. it's like a, just a um, like an instinct, like just instinctually shot the car because that's yeah. that's what we would have been taught to do, and just before we would realize it's just all dead, and they, they that's when they realize, oh wow, it was it we're wasn't fucked. even a grenade, <laughs> it was like it was a beer can, and then, we're fucked. And then they get the fixer to come in, and yeah. it's like, <laughs> Jesus, and that's that's a that's a that's a very interesting way how they betray the the Israeli government, how they just yeah. they don't even want to deal with this. This this uh this literally problem in a legal a way, <laughs> just literally bury it, like 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 figuratively uh, and and literally they just bury the <laughs> the problem. Yeah, and those poor men are just like carrying the guilt of that 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 situation that happened before. And, but I also love the set design of that that outpost. It's just it's such, yeah. such a shitty. <laughs> It's such a shitty know, little it's um, like, outpost. Like, it's a little tower, a tiny gate. Yeah. Um, it's like not even like a like a proper military tower. Like, like they cut it out of like a water tank. Yeah, they cut it out of a water tank. <laughs> They're all sleeping in a shipping container that's like sinking, sinking into the ground. Yeah. There's like a sinkhole or something that they're yeah. near. It's 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 funny, and they're always like testing yeah, they're, how they're how, <laughs> how far the angles. And they're eat, they're basically eating dog food as well. <laughs> like it's. It's uh, it's uh, I mean you say that it's purgatory I think it's hell but <laughs> <laughs> like a mix of both I don't know I mean they don't seem to treat it like hell but it just seems so <laughs> barren that it could just be purgatory because they mm. they barely get what any do they say? human contact. They say three cars and the occasional camel every now and then. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's the same camel every time. I too. think it is the same camel, but somehow it keeps coming the same way. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, Foxtrot's uh, great. Any other big, se- like, major scenes that you really enjoyed from maybe a film that I have not witnessed yet? Uh, now, you talked about saying The Wild Pear Tree, um, yeah. the Nuri Bell, Bill J. Chalan well, that's film. That's the thing. I'm trying to think of, like, there's a lot of really good scenes in that I film. was I was told there's, like, a 40-minute conversation with, oh, like, yeah. both, uh, I that's think, like, hilarious. a Christian uh, conservative and a progressive yeah. Muslim about, like, you know, the just the concept yeah. of religion and, like, they're all, Well, like, it's not really... really it's, they, they jump through a lot of topics, but they sort of are... It's sort of really just framed around, like... Uh, what they think of art. Oh, that's because right, this, that's right. Because yeah. it's this one, this older author who's established in um, his hometown, um, he's sort of, he's sort of just like making books in a more commercial sense to make a living. And this young author or poet, I should say, because that's how, because he makes a poetry book in The Wild Pear Tree, he hasn't made his work yet, but he's, and he's trying to find someone to read his work and to sort of, um, uh, to, give it more uh, spread, give it more attention. So, so he's able to sort of sell his work and to become established. Although he doesn't like how this, this, this conservative author is sort of like, sort of became a sellout in a sense. But then again, like 
it's interesting the conversation because this 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 conservative author's being rather realistic about this not being sort of a dreamer like this young author's like saying you know you could make works that can just change minds you know you should be always trying to make something that you're going to be remembered for and he's just saying well i'm just trying to make some stuff just just so i can you know i, I can keep on living and he's like i'm getting like it's like sort of brings up uh like age he's just like oh i'm 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 becoming old my back sore bugger off <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's how the conversation ends i mean there's a oh, lot wow. of there's a lot of good parts of the wild pear tree it's a long film yeah um, well most of chenland's films are really I, long, there's, there's a lot of yeah there's a there's like there's a lot of really nice things like just uh little scenes that i don't want to mention because you haven't seen it and i want you to watch it i so do want to see it them. too but like one nice uh, scene from the wild pear trees uh, the protagonist meets um, a girl from from his from his school from his high school, and there's and, and it's and it's strange because the, the 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 direction the camera works got this like strange like sensual sort of touch to it where it's like th- these two are sort of um, they're, on, they're on the verge of of kissing or making out, and 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 y- like you're seeing the wind blow through her hair and, and like leaves. It's it, the very beautiful scene. And then, of course, like her aunt comes to to get the girl, and he hides behind the tree because they uh, they don't don't want to be seen. Sort of uh, think she was engaged to someone, so she didn't want to be put into a scandalous position. And also, I'm I'm not really too sure how how liberal they are with with sexuality in Turkey, but I still think that there's there's a they got a bit of conservatism with um what how someone were to embrace themselves in public then well of course over here for instance so i think there's still a bit of um difference in that regard but that's a that's a nice uh, scene on its own that that conversation is a great segment and is it how long is it like it, it, it's because oh it, wait a second there's a there's another conversation segment that i think is even longer another one yeah does this um, movie have any stories? <laughs> oh yeah, it's got heaps of narrative. I, well, like I mean, it like, is three hours long. Legit. I mean, like the narrative isn't something that seems immediate. Like the 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 the, the most important sort of arc that's going on is is this is this poet trying to get his work to be published and to be read, but he's he's just having trouble getting it. Someone that you know cares enough to give him the funding to to have his dream come true. And then, sort of, in the end, it sort of shows the result of that. But there's also this struggle between, like, him and his his, his father, while at the same time he's, uh, he's he's talking to people from different um, professions within the community. Like, talks to a mayor, um, someone who owns a construction company, talks to a, a, a priest. I, I think that might be the long conversation you're talking about because he talks to an author first. But then he talks to a priest. No, he talks to two priests. Yeah, I think, and he has, I think that's the one. Yeah, <laughs> and he has and he has a crazy um, uh, conversation between the, the the two priests about about uh, religion and and philosophy and all sorts of things. It's hilarious. Uh, and these it doesn't ever become self indulgent though, does no, it? No, it doesn't actually become self indulgent. It's very interesting how it's shot too, because they're just, they just walking around the village and they're just talking. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, the wild pear tree is very nice. Uh, we should we, we've gone a bit longer here. We probably didn't get to all the topics we want to, but we'll just mm. end up uh, 
I mean, we usually want to end on a high note, but how about, because we're about to record a film fiasco episode, we've got to get into the mould of being very cynical and very annoyed. So what yeah. was one of the worst or one of the weakest films that you saw in 2018? Oh. Or one that you just absolutely just like, why Why am I here? Like, what? what is what is the state of film coming to? What is there anything that questioned your love of film and it's like... It's, it not really. Because you know how I am. I don't really try to watch a film that I know I'm not going to like. Yeah. So if I watch a terrible film, I expect it to be terrible and hilarious. So I just, that's why I love doing film fiasco. Because it's, it's a kind of, I either want something to be brilliant or I want it to be ridiculous. Just like so terrible. I'm just thinking like, God, I don't know what was going through the minds of these filmmakers. But I don't think this is how they imagined it. <laughs> I'll quickly say one because I actually wanted to like this film. Mm. But... I, I recently caught I, I caught it because it was on, put on stand recently, and that is the Disney's A Wrinkle in Time. Did you oh, see wow. this? Nah, Davernes. Davernes film. I'm like, this. I heard it wasn't. This is. Imp- I was watching it. And I'm like, this is impressively bad. Like mm. I, every single decision in this film was the wrong one. I, I was baffled by how bad the film was. Like it's schmaltzy, manipulative crap. Like, it's incompetently written. Like, things just happen. Like, yeah. the, the characters are just annoying. Like, the the lead character, like, she's just... Yeah. She's not likable in, in the slightest. And then you've got Reese Witherspoon, who found um, Amy Adams' performance from Enchanted in the garbage and just it's, dusted it's it off and said, oh, I'll do that. I've never... I haven't really heard anything good about the film. And no. people are trying to defend it. They're not trying to defend the film. They're just trying to defend the filmmaker. Yeah. Even though the filmmaker made a bad film. I mean, is is Duvernay... I mean, uh, maybe I have to I have to watch Selma and I have to watch 13, but is yeah. Duvernay a good filmmaker, though? Oh, she well, she probably is, but, like, Wrinkle in Time's so different to what else she's made. I'm surprised yeah. she even picked up a project like that. It's, she, it's sort of like... It reminds me of those uh, independent filmmakers that the <laughs> superhero studios pick up mm. and they get them to... to like they, they they wouldn't have made she hasn't made a lot of films and no. then they get them to make something like big Hollywood giant budget and everything and they don't have a lot of control over yeah it. much like a guy we're going to be talking about on film fiasco <laughs> well Colin Trevorrow one film I could probably mention that's like relatively fresh in my mind just because we mentioned this earlier that I di- it didn't hate but I was disappointed by it was First Reform yeah see I, I really like liked First Reform you li- really like First Reform I didn't really like it very much i mean i mean there's uh, like there's there's some good aspects to it but i don't think it's a very strong film no a lot of people are saying that uh, and because again we're, rep- we're recording this like about like 12 hours before the oscars are the oscar nominations are about to be announced but some people are thinking that this is a bit of a dark horse for best original screenplay and i'm no, like what writing this film was the, the writing weak. i mean i mean paul schrader's never really been one for subtlety though i mean the, oh. the the fact that um, Amanda Seyfried's character's name is Mary yeah. is very very on yeah. the nose. Well, it's strange because, like some instances, this is this is what's really weird. I think he was a better writer when he was young, and he just got progressively worse as he got along. Uh, I don't know because because Machine is is very well directed, well, well written. Um, Taxi Driver's got a very good screenplay to it. Mm. I don't know what the... And, and even his, his, his other films... Uh, I haven't seen Blue Collar, but I heard that's really good. Mm. Hardcore's quite good, but it's nowhere near as like blunt as something like 
first reforms. But he's also done two direct-to-DVD Nicolas Cage films, though, hasn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, he Dying has. of the Light and what's the other one? I, uh, I don't even know if, dog. if he even wanted to make Dog Eat Dog. I'm pretty sure he wanted to make Dog Eat Dog to sort of apologise to Nicolas Cage just because of how terrible... Um, Dying, Dying of the Light, light came was, out, yeah. but just to speak, just to, to talk about uh, something um, that was relatively relatively interesting come from Schrader would be his his film Dark, which is his re-edit of um, Dying of the Light. I never seen Dying of the Light, and I really want to watch it. But Dark was very interesting. I really liked Dark. It was a weird experimental uh, film, but um, from what I saw from Dark. Um, Kind of makes me a bit depressed to go watch uh, Dying of the Light because because uh, what he what he did with Dark was good, but I'm gonna see that some of that footage in Dying of the Light and just gonna see how it was how it shouldn't have been handled mm. <laughs> by a bunch of producers because he didn't have control over the cut. Mm. But no, I wasn't a fan of First Reform. So that was your biggest disappointment, you think? I don't know if it's my biggest disappointment, but it's like it's just when I first watch it, people were talking about it that much, and they, it's like it's like Hereditary. It's coming up. It's coming back. Up again, people. Well, they're like, trying. Oh, to, they're trying to get Oscar push, which I don't think it should get any Oscars whatsoever. Or okay, we're, we're maybe we're Tony Collette, but I think the field's strong enough. Or well, I would not nominate Collette. Mm. I think Collette is the only thing kind of holding that movie together. I to be well, quite I honest, that Collette got uh, a nomination because if if there was anything wrong with she's the only she's the only thing her would have been the character it would have been the character that would have been the problem i think think i don't think her performance is bad at all i think she's easily the best part of the film yeah i think the just the the way the character was handled and directed might be a bit of a detriment i'm just saying that i've seen about 10 performances this year i mean coolie should have have got a nomination coolie should get all five slots but (laughs) (laughs) just just give her all the acting give her her all the awards (laughs) We need to give her all the awards because her vi- like because there was a video reaction for when she won the European Film oh, Awards. Yeah. Have have I showed you? Uh, I haven't seen there, what you told there, me about. There this. was a video reaction where like because she couldn't go to the European Film Awards because she's in LA and she's because she was in LA promoting Cold War and also she couldn't fly because she was seven months pregnant as well. And she has this, she, her husband filmed her video reaction for when she won the award, and it was like. Her joy was intoxicating. Like she was jumping around. She squeals at one point in excitement. So I'm like, we need Joanna Coolig to win all the awards so we can get more, so we can get more reactions. So you can like get more this. genuine joy. Yes, and not just get someone that grabs the award and like nods their head or something and then walks mm, off. And polite golf clap. Yeah, <laughs> polite golf clap. But speaking of Oscars, and this leads on to my easily my biggest disappointment of the year, which is getting a lot of Oscar attention, is Adam McKay's Vice. Oh. It was one of my most anticipated films of the year, and it was hot trash. What do you think? Do you think uh, Bale was good in? in He's the film? fine, but it's mm. like th- I've seen Bale be so much better in so yeah. many other things. It's just like uh, wh- what is it with what is it with the Academy's fascination with fat people and giving awards to fat characters? Because they give it to Gary Oldman last year. Well, you know who else <laughs> should get an award? And, we, and I was just bashing. Well, the if we get if we're gonna give it to um, fat people, give one to Gerard Depardieu. Sweden should get an award. <laughs> yeah. Do you think? Do you think that uh, her playing the old man? Do you think that should be like a uh, male supporting actor? No, best actress. <laughs> best act, but she can get a best actress for the because she did two well, roles. What, what's that film with she that? Did two roles. What's that? Yeah, I know, but there was that film that Eddie Redmayne got nominated for playing a tr- for best actor playing a transgender woman though. So yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, that's interesting. Like, should should that... Um, They'll be nominated in actor, that's yeah. the thing. Only yeah. the Razzies do that because um, Adam Sandler for Jack and Jill at the Razzies got nominated for Worst Actor and Worst <laughs> Actress. <laughs> <laughs> and Worst On-Screen Duo as well, I think. <laughs> did he take home all three? Yeah, I don't know. I think he did, actually. <laughs> but back to Vice, though, like... This movie should have been great. It had an amazing cast. Like, and if it was made in the same vein of The Big Short, but it was like The Big Short, but if The Big Short was was ten times of as obnoxious and had about one hundredth of the insight that the in, that The Big Short had. Yeah. Like the film is like, I mean, if you already knew that Dick Cheney was a dick going in, <laughs> the film adds literally nothing else to that. <laughs> and it's just, it's for a movie about Dick Cheney, it shouldn't be boring. And yeah. Vice managed to be. And Vice also has the absolute worst mid credit scene I have ever seen in a film. It's insane. I, I still haven't seen. I should just watch that Vice scene. Vice is awful. Someone has it somewhere. It might be, because uh, it's going to get nominated for Best Picture. Of course it is. And like, uh, th- speaking of which, like, there's been a, a lot of really not great Oscar contenders this year. What what are the Oscar contenders? <laughs> Green Book. <laughs> oh yeah, heard about. I that. haven't seen Green I haven't Book, seen but Green it's Book, but a lot of people complaining about. I, that. I've heard it's like, driving oh, Mr. Ali. Is yeah. what I've heard people call yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know. People complain like, oh, it's white savior film. So just like, oh, the Academy bunch of old people, um, mm. old white. But then there's also like to to, to prove that the Academy really don't care. Like um, again, we'll we'll see in about twelve hours time. But to see. To truly show that the Academy never cared about the Me Too movement, Bohemian Rhapsody is probably going to get a whole bunch of nominations. Oh, yeah. What's his name? Singer. Yeah, Singer. Well, they they, they might think that they're safe at the moment because Singer isn't guilty just yet. What? <laughs> uh, and then, then you know what's going to happen if, he, if he's been proven guilty? They're going to be like... He's going oh, to jail if he gets oh, proven guilty. Oh, well, he'll be going to jail, but they'll be just as sub because they'll get a bit of backlash for like, oh, you gave the award to this, you know, this uh, rapist. Oh or my god! Speaking and they'll of be which, like, oh, um, they'll, they'll they'll make up some kind of crap like, oh, we didn't we didn't know about that. Or they'll, they'll make a Polanski esque thing where they're like, yeah, we didn't know. We, yeah. we or, or they just yeah. can, they, they're just blissfully ignorant towards that, I guess. Mm. But th- that just reminded me, you did see the "Let Me Be Frank" Kevin Spacey video. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my, <laughs> we we need a version of the "Let Me Be Frank" video with Christopher Plummer now. Uh, like, what the fuck was that? I, I don't know. It was weird because it was like I don't even know what he was doing there. Was he trying to like prove his innocence, but at the I same time he wanted to be be he wanted to get the role of Frank Underwood again? Uh, oh, I was I confused. I thought it was really weirdly amusing. I had to go outside and go for a walk as soon as I saw that because I was like, well, "What? That, what uh, is?" Th- were you that mad over it? No, not, not mad. I was just like, I had no idea what to do. I was just like, just uh, I, I saw it on my laptop. I closed it and then just we just kept kept walking. Oh, I, I, just, like, I just laughed at it. <laughs> I just thought it was so bizarre. I was like, I didn't I didn't actually expect that to happen. I just uh, saw this like, I just saw this thing pop up with fucking Kevin Spacey's face. I'm like, what's this? Is he is he making an ad or something? He's just like, let me be Frank Underwood. He's like, you always uh, wanted me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what the heck? Is this genuine? It's genuine. Was he making a joke? <laughs> Either way, it was really bizarre. I don't know if it was in very good taste at all. Uh, anyway, this is a weird time to probably kick to call this given. Gi- I think this is the perfect way this to end the This is the perfect episode. way to end the episode. Everyone will just think about 
about uh, that Kevin Spacey video. It's now going to be ingrained in their minds. Uh. <laughs> They're going to be like, yes, I want him to be Frank. No. <laughs> I never want to see Kevin Spacey ever again. Well, Here's no, the thing. That, Here's the thing. There's a lot of Kevin Spacey movies that I really, really want to see, but now I can only watch it I have to I have to spoil the movies ahead of time to make sure that it Kevin Spacey No, no, to no because I will only watch a Kevin Spacey movie now if he's brutally murdered in the end of it. That's a bit bizarre. So 7 seven's okay. Baby Driver's okay. What else is good? Um da-da-da. he gets killed at the end of American Beauty. Yeah, American Beauty as well. Uh LA Confidential I think he dies in too. Yeah, he does. Can never watch The Usual Suspects again. That movie's tainted forever because that's also directed by Brian Singer. Oh wow! Jesus Christ! That movie's it's like a, it's, it's the, the it's it's the rapist duo. Oh God! <laughs> allegedly, but we they're pieces of shit. Yeah, allegedly, but um, I don't know if the if the evidence is supposed to be strong enough that he's most likely to get convicted. Then it's not much. I mean, it's most likely that it did happen, I guess, because because uh, with with their with their crack bloody lawyer teams. They're going to do what they could just so they don't go to jail. This is a really depressing way to end the episode, actually. Just before we leave, actually, um, is there a film in 2019? Because overall, 2018 was a good year. What are you expecting from 2019? And is there anything that you're very, really, very much looking forward to? I haven't really had a look, to be honest. Well, I think Claire Denis' High Life is probably up there for you, though. Oh, yeah. I'd be interested. She's going to be playing it. at the French Film Festival in March. Yeah. Get around it. Yeah, I'll get around it. I'll get around uh, all the, the films that were released what, last year that I didn't get to see um, that are showing at the French Film Festival, like the Brothers, Sisters, and, and probably... Sisters, sisters Brothers. Sisters, Brothers. Oh God, I can't... The brothers I can't and even, Sisters. I can't even do film. Uh, it's like I'm dyslexic. I just... The, the word order is always incorrect. Or the, the book image. Uh, the book image. From Godard. What I'll else is there? See. Vendry, or whatever revenge would be. Yeah. How would you? Or French revenge? Sorry, that's how you say French, it. French revenge. <laughs> how did you say that, by the way, just Eric? To be specific, it's a <laughs> I watched it on a movie. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it was playing on a movie for for a month. Uh, so nothing really in 2019. You're really looking yeah, forward I d- to I that much. Really you need to do look. more research. You, you, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned some films uh, before. You said an Iranian filmmaker was bringing out another film. Oh, I can't remember who it was. I uh, can't remember. Nah, I don't know. Oh wait. Oh no, I'm not going to mention it. Never mind. All right. So it's a wrap, is it? <laughs> Time to give we're the so bucks. low energy. Like we're, just, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're all just standing around because we know we're going to have to rewatch the book of Henry. Before oh no, I'm excited. Episode. <laughs> I'm really excited. I'm just bringing down the energy so much because I'm like, fuck, I've got to watch that movie again now. I mean, we're just going to skim through it. So, no, nah, we'll just get skip through all the boring bits. Oh, that movie would be perfect if if if, if um. The director gave if Colin Trevorrow treat, didn't. If, if Trevorrow it. gave it, if he edited it himself and Schrader, like Schrader did the dark treatment to um, Dying of the Light, <laughs> and he just made the Book of Henry go for half an hour and had all the best bits in it, and he just did really bizarre editing, that'd be like perfect. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll end it there. I'll. Gonna do your plugs. 
Uh, I'll record the plug separately. So thanks, Eric, for coming on. No problem. And stay tuned for Film Fiasco 2 on The Book of Henry and more episodes with Eric to come, including the first annual Ad Mappers, the Ad Another Buddy Movie Podcast oh, yes. Awards. I'm very keen for that. Yes, they will be released. We'll try to get that recorded and released a couple of days before the Oscars because, you know what, awards shows suck and ours is the only one that, mat- that matters. Yes, ours is going to be a joy to watch and it's, just, it's not going to be boring. You, you, you're not going to have to worry about people giving speeches or anything like that. Mm, we'll, do, we'll do them for them. We'll do, the <laughs> do that for them. Eric, start working on your Polish accent for when Joanna Kulig accepts her award. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. G'day, guys. Thank you very much for listening to our 2018 Film in Review episode of Another Bloody Movie Podcast with my good friend, an honorary and spiritual co-host and everybody's favourite film snob, Eric Tischer. Apologies for all of the references to our Book of Henry episode, which we actually released first, but recorded after uh, this episode. Um, Completely stuffing up the continuity of our show, but completely on brand for us as we stick to our um, mantra of having absolutely no consistency to this show whatsoever. But if these inconsistencies don't bother you at all, you can go subscribe to us. You can find, subscribe to us on either Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, or on any other third-party podcast app. Wherever you get your podcasts, just search for another bloody movie podcast and hit that subscribe button. You can follow us on all our social media. On Facebook, we are at Another Bloody Movie Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, which is at AB Movie Podcast, and on Instagram at Another Bloody Movie Pod. You can also follow my personal Instagram and Twitter, which is both at SeanHub underscore. That is S-E-A-N-H-U-B underscore. You can follow me on Letterboxd. Just type in letterboxd.com forward slash Sean Coates. You can read my full written reviews at moviebabblereviews.com. I have just written a big written piece on the Mads Mikkelsen survival film Arctic, not to be confused with the other Mads Mikkelsen film, which has a title synonymous to a large frozen mass polar, which I hear is terrible, but Arctic is actually really fantastic. So see Arctic and also read my review on moviebabblereviews.com. Also, while you're on moviebabblereviews.com, I'm going to keep plugging them. Now, editor Nick is currently covering the Sundance Film Festival. He got accepted as press for Sundance and he is over there seeing some really cool films and writing some really, really good reviews of some of the stuff he's watching at Park City. So check those out while you are there at moviebabblereviews.com. And if you want to get in contact with the show or you have a suggestion for a film that Eric and I should cover on Film Fiasco, email us, anotherbloodymoviepod at gmail.com. And stick around after my little ramblings here to listen to an exclusive sneak preview of the next episode of Another Bloody Movie Podcast's Film Fiasco, Episode 3, on the Hugh Jackman disaster piece musical biography question mark on The Greatest Showman. Eric and I were joined on this episode by a writer from MakeTheSwitch.com, Ashley Matthews, who somehow hates The Greatest Showman more than me. I did not think that was possible, but yep, she does. And the it, what started as a podcast kind of turned into a group therapy session by the end, but it was a great, just, it was so good to just get all that off my chest and just completely rip into that movie. And we had a lot of fun while doing it. And I'm going to play a quick little two minute clip, a little teaser for that episode that will be released sometime 
next week. So stick around for that at the end of this. Thank you very much for listening. Play the clip. Where we are at this point of the movie, after the come alive sequence, we get to see like Barnum has bought this massive, like sort of like palatial estate almost, and mm. this carriage that he's riding has horses painted like zebras. Did anyone else notice <laughs> yeah, this? Yeah, 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 I saw that. <laughs> oh my goodness! But then this is where, because this thread is so important and so prescient to the movie, guys. Barnum gives one of her daughters a pair of ballet slippers as a present, and we get to see. Oh my her god! Because we cared about that, didn't exa- we? Yeah. Yep. Oh, my God. Get ready. The movie's only going to waste about 20 more minutes on that. Um, so, where were we now? Uh, we said Zac Efron and my head just went... Yeah, I think Zac Efron... Oh. Th- I think this is around where we're introduced to Zac Efron. Yeah, yeah, and this song is not that bad when he convinces mm. him to join, like, so the troupe. Yeah, so Zac Efron is playing... I can't remember his character's name. His name he, is Philip Carlyle. Philip Carlyle, and I'm guessing he's a real dude, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he was, like, some theatre director or some kind of... Yeah, he was a playwright... Playwright, theatre director, that kind of thing. And what Barnum is trying to get him on because, like, he has an eye for showmanship or, like, the showbiz or whatever. I think because he had connections of sorts. Because he lands like in, that. like, some gig with Buckingham Palace, which is really bizarre. He gets them to Buckingham Palace later yeah. in the film. But this is where we get yeah. to the, the, the other side dance number. And I was getting major flashbacks to the uh, dance number in Hail Caesar watching this <laughs> and made me just wish I was watching Hail Caesar the whole time. So. <laughs> That's a strange sequence because they were just. There's like a three minute song and they drank 10 shots. Yeah, and I thought exactly. they were going to collapse as soon as they, <laughs> as soon as they stopped amazing. singing. If it was me, the song would have stopped three shots in. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, like, they, they were just drinking the shots like water. Maybe, it, oh. maybe like, it was like really watered down alcohol. The bartender was oh, like, well, shit, they're uh, going to go apple, You know what? That, that would make sense. Is yeah. what it, is, it was probably um, yeah, some terrible, like, I don't know, homebrew rubbish, like alcohol, which would have been. But it looks like a pretty nice establishment that they're in at the very least. You would think it'd be good Mm. quality alcohol. Why are we still, like, (laughs) analyzing this? Because that stuff's more interesting than talking about the (laughs) film.